0: Who is God to you? God for me is everything, is my life, because my life without God is nothing. God is my Lord and Savior, my Father. You add God to the equation, everything's better. God to me is really no one to be honest, so uh, distant, you know, not communicative, no empathy. God is my Father. Somebody I pray to, talk to every day. God is a being greater than myself and greater than anybody else. God is people I meet and the experiences I have. I'm not really religious at all, so probably nothing. I don't believe in God. I don't believe it's intelligently possible that there was a God. He's there when I need help. He's there when I don't need help. He's just someone I want to talk to all the time. God is kind of like a mentor, and you should go to him for some faith. Mysterious, I will definitely say mysterious. I mean, to me, I I don't think that there is necessarily a God. I think that uh, we came from somewhere, and I don't know where that is, and there's plenty of uh, people that have answers for that, or think they have answers for that. But to me, having an invisible guy watch everything I do isn't uh, something I personally believe in. as far as like any role or anything in my life, it's not something that uh, I, I believe in, I guess. So. Well, good morning, everyone. It is exciting to be with you. My name is Mark Nelson, and I'm the campus pastor at our Greece campus here at Northridge. And as we get rolling. This morning, I want to take a moment to shout out to all my people out at our Greece campus. It's good to see you. Actually, I can't see you, but it's good to have you with us. And uh, no matter what campus uh, you're at this morning here at Northridge, great to have you with us. If you're watching online, good to have you here as well. Would you take a Bible and go to 1 John chapter 4? 1 John 4 is going to be on page 988 if you're using one of our Bibles this morning. And as you're going there, I want to recall a moment from my own life that I remember like it was just yesterday. I can still remember vividly exactly where I was the moment that I looked my then-girlfriend Gretchen squarely in the eyes, and I spoke to her these three words for the very first time. I said to her softly, Let's go, Bills! No, those aren't the words. Those aren't the words. I said to her I love you, I love you. I said that to this girl. Whoa, you know, like I was risking a lot in that moment. I was putting myself out there because what if she didn't reciprocate, right? What if she didn't say those same three words back to me? What if she didn't feel the same way about me as I felt about her? Or maybe worse, what if somehow I wasn't able to live up to all that those three little words implied? Would I risk breaking this girl's heart? Well, thankfully, uh, before the the night was finished, she also spoke those same three words back to me, and I guess it's all worked out fairly well since in just under two months, Gretchen and I celebrate 25 years of marriage. Thank you. I'll take it. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But man, we know, don't we, the power of those words. You know the power of those words, too, because you can still remember a time in your own life, where someone you desperately longed to hear those words from, maybe a romantic interest, said them to you for the first time, and your heart can still be warmed as you reflect on that moment. Or maybe it was a mom or a dad growing up who often told you just how much they loved you. Or perhaps today you know the power of those three little words as well, but from the other end of the spectrum, because you never truly did hear them. You never heard them from that person you longed to hear them from. That romantic interest never spoke them to you. Or maybe your mom or your dad growing up never told you how much they loved you. And today you're still living with a void in your life, pain from not hearing those words. I love you, maybe the most powerful words in the English language. And we're in week two of a. A series we're simply calling God is. And last week we introduced the series, we simply said that whether or not you follow God depends on who you believe God is. And we're convinced that once you see God correctly, you're gonna want to follow Him. You're gonna think He's worth following. And so today we're gonna begin to look at the first of four attributes that we'll look at throughout the rest of this series. And we're gonna consider the truth that God is love. God is love. And since we tend to love love in our culture, I think this might just be God's most popular attribute. Maybe it was John, the very close friend of Jesus, who said it best when he wrote in 1 John 4, verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It couldn't be said more plainly than that. God is love. This same author in perhaps what has become known as the most Uh, maybe famous of all Bible verses, in John 3, 16, said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And these words from John serve as God's loudest I love you to the world, that he gave up himself so that we might have a relationship with him. And this theme of God's love recurs throughout the pages of Scripture. And man, I wish I had unlimited time today to talk to you about the amazing love of God. I don't, and you're glad about that. But, man, God's love is infinite. This is truly an inexhaustible subject. His love can't be measured. In fact, we use, in our world today, we use a lot of items to measure things, don't we? If I were a a baker, I might measure my ingredients with a cup. And if I were a builder, then I might measure my project with a tape. If I were an athlete, I might measure my performance with a watch. But the songwriter of Scripture in the Old Testament, King David, when he was reflecting on the the goodness and on the love of God, he couldn't contain himself. He sang out, my heart, my cup, he says, overflows. He sang, my cup overflows. God's love can't be measured with a cup. And he also, in another song, sang that God's love is higher than the heavens. It can't be measured with a tape. And in yet another song, he's saying that God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. It can't be measured with a watch. The scope of God's love is truly infinite. And aren't you thankful to know today that at the very moment you need to experience more of God's love, there's plenty more available for you. But what does it mean that God loves us? If we don't understand the nature of love, we could misunderstand the nature of God. And so we want to First, think about what it even means to love. What is love? Well, it's a good time to think about it, isn't it? Because Valentine's Day is right around the corner. I hope you're ready for it. Uh, But it's interesting to think about the fact that that just like David did, as we saw a moment ago, just like in the Psalms or the songs that David wrote, he sang about the thing that was most important to him. We tend to sing songs that uh, are displaying what's truly most valuable to us, what we love And you might find it interesting that outside of common words like the, and, and I, outside those pronouns and conjunctions, the most commonly used word in today's pop, rock, R&B, soul, and jazz music is the word love. Because our culture is fascinated with the topic. Our culture is obsessed with love. And that makes sense to us because we find within our own lives this great desire to be loved. But unfortunately, I think we have some big misconceptions when it comes to what love really is. Let's consider a few of them together. First, in our culture, love is kind of weak. It's kind of weak. It's sort of soft and frilly. It's all chocolates and Valentines, chick flicks and sappy sentimentalism. (laughs) For guys especially, it's hard for us. We think it's kind of weak to share our feelings or express our heart. Or we might reduce love to... uh, a moment of wild passion that flares up, maybe even in a sexual encounter, but then flames out just as quickly with no real commitment because love is weak. And love also is primarily a feeling in our culture. Love is whatever makes me feel good, and if it feels bad, it must not be loving. And if I don't feel close to someone, it must mean I no longer love them. And love is also personally defined It is whatever each individual wants it to be. There are no boundaries. Each person is free to define their own love, and no one else has any right to say what I should or shouldn't love. And these cultural misconceptions, they tend to carry over into our ideas about God because we figure, well, hey, if God is love, and that's the way I feel about love, then God must be, well, he must be okay with everything. We think God is okay with everything because, you know, he'd be permissive, He doesn't judge because that feels mean and love is soft and nice and weak. And we think that God accepts everyone because after all, how could a loving God be exclusive? How could he limit those who experience his love? And so we reason that in the end, love will simply win out and God will give everyone a free pass. Or we think that that God exists for my happiness, because, you know, love is all about feeling good, and God is love, so he must be all about me feeling good and being happy. But these cultural ideas, they don't fully line up with what God has revealed to be true of himself. And there actually might be some listening to these words today that simply flat-out reject the God of Christianity because you understand he doesn't gel with these cultural values. In fact, People.com recently reported some comments made by Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. He said this recently, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this? Wow. Well, yeah, that, that doesn't sound very loving. And, and here at Northridge Church, we don't treat the subject of God's judgment lightly. And our hearts are filled with compassion for those who are hellbound. But we also take the Bible's words very seriously. And we, we believe that the Bible's teaching is clear that there really is an eternal hell and that those who don't experience forgiveness through Jesus Christ end up there. But the popular idea that God sends people to hell isn't actually true because it places the blame in the wrong spot. You see, it isn't God who sends people to hell, but rather it's each person's own unresolved sinful condition. It says, if each person has been born with a fatal diagnosis that God alone holds the cure for, but in his great love he holds it out, he offers it to anyone who would accept it. I find it interesting that Aaron Rodgers talks about what God wants because we're told... In Scripture, that God actually wants just the opposite for people. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, we read that he, God, does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And we would plead with you today that if you've not yet received this free gift of eternal life that God so lovingly offers you, that you can do that today. You can accept Jesus Christ and his gift of life. But we're playing A very dangerous game if we define God or his love based on our own opinions or on the shifting sands of culture rather than on God's timeless truth. So let's instead look at a biblical understanding of love. Now, if we were to understand the words in the New Testament that we uh, translate as the English word love, we would see several of them, and we don't have time, unfortunately, to do a deep study on each of them, but if we were to take them all together, what we would come to realize is that when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about one of two things. It's either talking about acting towards someone for their good, things like giving and serving and expressing kindness to someone, or it's talking about feeling something good towards someone. We could call that affection, warmth, and emotional bond. And it's important to realize that both of these dimensions are good and healthy aspects of a loving relationship. Uh, both of them ought to be a part of any loving relationship. Take uh, a marriage, for example. I think that understanding these two dimensions can help explain why, for example, in a marriage sometimes um, there can be confusion or frustration about the way that we interact with one another. So a husband might say to a wife, honey, you know that I love you. I've told you that I do, and look at all the ways that I support our family. He's talking about the actions of love, and The wife might say in response to that, well, you know, honey, that's great and I really appreciate all of that, but I want to know that for you it's more than just an intellectual choice. I want to know that you feel love for me, that you're crazy about me. She's pointing to the feeling side of the equation. At risk of public humiliation, let me share an example of this from my own life. So a few years back, I was concerned that I wasn't truly as thoughtful or as intentional toward my wife Gretchen as I really needed to be. And I knew that I wanted to be more thoughtful and intentional, but I just thought, you know, I need some way to trigger my memory. And so the way that I tend to remember things that are important to me is I write them into my calendar. And here's where you begin to shake your head disapprovingly and say, oh no, Mark, you didn't. Oh yes, I, I did. I, I thought it was a little too obvious to actually write the name Gretchen in my calendar. So I just put the letter G there, and I periodically place that in my calendar, but unfortunately, my wife, who's much more perceptive than I often like to give her credit for, was seated beside me on the couch one evening, and I had my laptop open. My calendar was open in front of me, and she said, hey, um, Mark, what's that G on your calendar? "Uh, Grapefruit? Like, (laughs) I like to buy grapefruit periodically. No, she said, is that me? And I said... "Um, I, she caught me. I said, yeah. She said this to me. Mark, I want to be more than just an appointment on your calendar. Right? And she's right. She was right. The, the, the idea that, that both the action side and the feeling side uh, of love are important, that feelings in our relationship should naturally spring up without having to be scheduled, that's, that's a good thing. And she was exactly right in that moment. But I think um, we can make a mistake when it comes to the two dimensions of love, because they are meant to work in tandem, right? Ideally, they'll work together, uh, and they should never work to the exclusion of, of the other. So just as I'll never act in your best interest without it also affecting how I feel about you positively, I also can't claim to have loving feelings for you, but then not act in a way that's best for you. But, but here's the mistake that I think we can make. Because love involves, rightly, both actions and feelings, we can make the mistake of thinking that they're of equal weight and priority. But here's where I think God's love can really help us. Here's where the nature of God's love truly helps us understand that one of these has actually a higher value than the other. And so let's take a look at the nature of God's love. You're in 1 John 4. Uh, Let's look at verse 7. John, John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. In those two short verses, John uses the word love five times. And every time he uses it in that context, it's the same Greek word, either the noun or verb form of the word agape. And of all the words that we translate into the English word love that are in the New Testament, Agape is considered to be the highest form of love. It's the love God has for us. And it could be defined this way, to act act towards someone's good at cost to yourself. To act towards someone's good at cost to yourself. This is a love that's purely motivated, sacrificial, and unconditional. It's the kind of love that acts for the good of the other person despite personal feelings. You could say that it's the difference between what we might call... Contract love, on the one hand, and covenant love, on the other hand. Contract love says, hey, I'll do my part if you do your part. Let's make a deal. Let's strike a contract. But, but covenant love is different. It says, hey, I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to act in your best interest no matter how you act toward me. And when John uh, here says that God is agape, he is saying that God is the full expression of this covenant love. You know, the 1980s uh, rock band Foreigner saying, I want to know what love is. But here, John is helping us understand that love is not mostly a what, but it's mostly a who. That God is love. He's the source of love, the essence of love, the definition of love, the standard of love. And so the better I get to know God, the better I'll understand love. And this statement, God is love, it can't be made of any other being in existence. You and I, we may be loving at times, but we are not love itself. And this means that loving isn't just one of the many things that God does, but that everything God does is done in love. When he instructs, he does it in love. When God judges, he judges in love. When he corrects, he corrects in love. And the order of these words is also very important because John is saying God is love, but he's not saying that love is God. God is love, love is not God, because God gets to qualify love, love doesn't get to qualify God. God defines love, love doesn't define God. And if we get those words reversed, a whole lot of bad things can happen because we can begin to reshape our definition of God according to what we think seems loving, while not allowing him to define what love looks like. But we're not to reshape God, instead his love is meant to reshape us. And so that's why John says in verse seven, let us love one another. And when he says that, don't you know that he's using the same word agape, right? I I mentioned that he's using the same brand of love that God has for us. That's the kind of love that we're meant to display toward others. Selfless, unconditional, purely motivated. And here's the deal guys, life happens. Right? It happens, and we're going to be forced into all kinds of situations where we're going to have to decide between the two dimensions of love, the action side or the feeling side, because there's times in life we just can't, we can't have both. And so it's time for my child to be disciplined. I know they need to be disciplined. I don't really want to do it. I don't feel like it. What should I do? What am I going to do in that moment? I need to speak kindness to my spouse. I need to, I need to speak kindness to my boyfriend or girlfriend I feel like, quite honestly, being a jerk. What am I going to do? I I need to honor the plans that I made with my friend for the weekend, but a better offer came along. I really feel like taking, what am I going to choose? And it's in these moments that we can begin to understand that to act towards someone in their best interest, even at cost to myself, holds the greater value. What does God's love mean? Well, quite simply, it means that God always acts in the best interest of those he loves, always, 100% of the time. It means that the true nature of love is often far different than what we perceive it to be. It means that love is strong. It's not weak. It's, It's the strongest possible thing. Now, that isn't to say that love isn't sensitive or thoughtful. It absolutely is, but it knows how to be tender and tough at the same time. And maybe I could speak to the guys in the room for just a moment, Guys, don't think for a minute that to share your heart with those that you love is not a manly thing to do because one of the strongest things that you can do as a man is to share your feelings and your affections and your love for those that you care about. But this strength of love, it doesn't easily give up. It doesn't tap out when things get hard. It fights, it protects, and when necessary, it corrects. It always promotes the truth, even when that truth is hard to hear, but it always does so in a thoughtful and sensitive way. This, by the way, is why God's love must be exclusive. Because like like any loving father that would violently oppose an intruder that would seek to break into the, the, the home and harm his family, God's love also acts like that love of a father that seeks to protect his children against that which would harm them. And so this exclusive love can't be permissive of ideas or behaviors that would harm people or society, even if those ideas or behaviors seem loving on the surface. Because love is not weak. Love is strong. But love also is primarily a choice. Love is primarily a choice, not a feeling, although it certainly involves feelings, as we saw earlier. But it doesn't depend on feelings to remain active and engaged in the relationship. And I think there's a real practical reason why love is a choice. It's because while you and I can't always kind of feel our way back into acting in love, we can always choose to act our way back into loving feelings. Because when the feelings fade, and they do, because that's what feelings do, uh, the choice to act in love can hold things together until the feelings reemerge. This decision of our will can keep us engaged and present for the good of the other person until the feelings return. And guys, I can't count for you the number of marriage counseling situations that I've been involved with where the marriage is simply dissolving because one or both people decided that it was more about feeling something good than it was about acting for the best interest of the other person. And homes are destroyed and lives are devastated and that's not love that self-centeredness at its core. But love is strong, and it chooses to act for the good of the other person, and it also is divinely defined. Love is divinely defined. It isn't personally defined by each and every individual, but God reveals its true nature. We're told in today's culture that we're defined by who we love, but that's not true. We're not defined by who we love. We're defined by who loves us. God's love for humanity gives each of us an unshakable value, purpose, and identity. And this love has the power to keep us from the endless pursuits of something that would fully satisfy that greatest desire, because God's love does for us just that. Maybe today you've misunderstood God because you've misunderstood the true nature of love. But he wanted to make it unmistakably clear. So he didn't just tell us about it. He didn't just give us a philosophical explanation. He showed us his own love. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God loves you so much today that he gave up his own life for you so that you could experience life the way that it was always meant to be experienced that is, to know the one who made you, knows you best, and loves you more than anyone ever could. And for followers of Jesus, we're not meant to live through our day, day-by-day experiences merely through our own perspectives, interests, or desires, but we're meant to live our lives through the life that we have in Jesus. Our lives are meant to resemble the one who gave up his life for us. And I wonder today how many marriages Could be saved from the brink of disaster if this brand of love were practiced? How many families in turmoil could experience peace if this brand of love were displayed? How many friendships gone terribly wrong could be reconciled if this brand of love were pursued? How many dating relationships could become healthy? How many churches could thrive? How many office environments could be strengthened if this brand of love were shown? Because this is the life-changing influence that those who have been changed by God's love can bring into any situation in life. So we've thought together today about how the feelings of love are of high value, and they really are. And how the actions of love are of even higher value. And if all of that is true, then the highest form of love could only be to love the person I don't feel like loving, to love the person that I might even consider unlovely. I'd say it this way, that the most powerful expression of God's love is to love the unlovely. The person that, quite honestly, I don't even really want to interact with. The person that I'm not friends with. The person that irritates me at times. To show God's love to that person could be the highest, I think is the highest form of love. And I think it reflects most greatly what God did for us. Paul says, In Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrated, that is he acted out his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were very unlovely in God's sight, Christ died for us. And perhaps you and I will never resemble God's love more than when we act in love toward those that we might consider unlovely. (laughs) But admittedly, man, this is an enormous challenge for us, isn't it? How do we do it? How do we pull it off? How do we put on display this God brand, this agape brand of selfless, unconditional, sacrificial, purely motivated love? Well, I want to suggest just three things that all of us can do. No matter your age, no matter your life circumstances, we can all do these three things. Number one, forgive the person who doesn't deserve it. Forgive the person who doesn't deserve it. You know that forgiveness is literally the canceling of a debt, to forgive a debt, that implies that you're not going to want to do it. That implies that you recognize, no, that person really does owe me. That person really did hurt me. But I am not going to hold that against them. I'm going to erase that debt. I'm canceling that debt. That is an amazing way to mirror what Christ did for us. Paul said in Ephesians 4, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I might add when you didn't deserve it. And so to to, to do that, to provide that forgiveness for someone who's actually hurt you deeply and doesn't deserve it, vividly mirrors what Christ did for you. And then we can give to the person who can't repay us as well. You know, it's one thing to scratch somebody else's back so that they can in turn scratch yours, but Jesus exposes the false motives in that when he said in Luke chapter six, and if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Man, this is incredibly hard for us. There are many, many ways we can do this. It's available all over the place. Let me mention one that I think is really amazing. We introduced it at Northridge here a few months back. It's called Care Portal. And there's a a box that today, if you desire more information about Care Portal, uh, man, I'd invite you to check that box. But this is an amazing way to care in very practical ways for families in our community that are hurting and that can't possibly repay us for those acts of generosity and kindness to them. And then third, we can also befriend the person that you're not naturally drawn toward. Befriend the person you aren't naturally drawn toward. You realize that all of us as human beings are naturally drawn toward people that are a lot like us. That just kind of shows how selfish we all tend to naturally be. But when you and I choose to cross racial, social, economic, even political lines and share God's kindness with people that aren't like us, it puts God's love on an incredible display in front of the world, in front of a culture where there's so much animosity and suspicion that exists between people groups. But, you know, if our love is contract brand love, we won't be willing to take these kinds of steps. We'll say things like, I'll forgive her when she finally admits, hey, I put in my time, it's time for somebody else to put in theirs. I tried to befriend that person, but they didn't seem to appreciate my efforts. But, man, as God begins to work in us a better understanding of his covenant love for us, we'll discover within ourselves a growing desire to share his love in very practical ways, even with those we would have once considered unlovely. What is love? Verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he, he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Man, I love that first line. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Not that we made the first move, but that he made the first move. <laughs> that's something we can all seek to replicate. Not that my spouse loved me, but that I loved them. Not that my friend loved me, but that I loved her. Not that my neighbor shoveled my walk, but that I shoveled his. Not that that person out there on social media that I don't even know expressed any kindness toward me. In fact, they did just the opposite, but I took the opportunity to express first kindness. This is what God did In sending his son Jesus, John says, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins that made us at one with a God that we had rebelled against. It made us at one with a God that quite honestly could have written us off. We didn't deserve his love. He poured it out on us anyway. This kind of love is mind-blowing. It is the most powerful, life-giving, life-changing force on planet Earth. No wonder Paul declared these words about God's love in Ephesians chapter 3. He said, How wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure, to the, to the measure of all the fullness of God. God's love can't be measured, but when it's experienced and when it's practiced, it truly has the power. To change the world. Lord God, thank you today for your amazing, amazing love for us that we don't deserve. God, you um, poured out your love for us. You gave us your son. Uh, You paid the ultimate price so that we could know you and have a relationship with you and be restored uh, to the one that loves us the most. And God, I, I thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that as we continue to get to know you as this series continues. Um, Lord, that it'll help us to know how to live a life that pleases you. God, thank you for all of this today. In the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.